0: everyone and welcome to another episode of the discomfort zone podcast I'm just gonna get the chat up and running and we can start as I hope uh, some of you know today is the first episode of the new format I spoke a little bit of the last episode about the change and why I'm doing this etc and so uh, uh, here I can turn myself up as well if that's better and so Due to I'm just going to recap quickly, but due to the recent events of coronavirus, the global lockdown, etc. Um, ah, thank you for the link. Yes, you can check out in uh, chat. Um, the I decided to change from talking just about the eco-village and permaculture to talking about uh, our history and the process that has led us to where we are today. Um, I should say that I. Uh, have been studying and expecting something like this for quite some time and uh, most people around me thought I was quite, uh, well let's say, not 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 normal uh, in that sense but uh, it just, this theory seems to be proving itself time and time again all over the world and uh, I feel that what I've learned and what I know could perhaps help some people out there to understand things a little bit better to see Uh, a little bit more of a grand uh, bigger picture and so it was with somewhat uh, trepidation that I decided to talk about these subjects so I should say right from the start that I've never actually spoken about these things in public Um, I've spoken with close friends and uh, not all have been as uh, understanding and welcoming as I would have hoped and they're topics that are rather controversial and um, quite taboo, I think, in our society in general. Now, having said that, there is a larger community of people who are aware and uh, quite knowledgeable about these subjects and I think that quite a few of them may be in chat and certainly on uh, Hive. So, uh, I don't feel alone and during my travels I've met far, far more people than I would have imagined. are aware of these things so it's a relatively small community but I think it's growing and as part of this community I would like to become uh, a voice as best I can uh, with my knowledge and experience to share my views on these subjects so I thought I would start the episode telling a little bit about how I came to learning about these things researching and uh, dedicating the better part of uh, the last decade um, to really researching and studying these these subjects. And I think I should probably start by clarifying what exactly I'm talking about. Now, as some of you may know, I'm rather a very big proponent of uh, language and semantics and understanding the meaning of words and the subjective meaning or perception of words. And because of this, when thinking about how to term these theories, I had a little bit of uh, different thoughts as to how to talk about it but in my personal language and uh, when I speak about these things I do actually use the term conspiracy theories. Now this is a demonized term, it's a term that was actually invented in order to push these things to uh, outside of the normal realms but I would like to reclaim this word. Uh, Yes, absolutely. Well done uh, for remembering. So I would like to reclaim this term conspiracy theories because the actual um, definition of a conspiracy theory, and I think I'll try and uh, put it up in chat over here, um, might be quite different than what we'd think. Obviously, when we talk about conspiracy theories, we usually consider things that are quite ridiculous, things that are um, obviously untrue or very much not in line with the accepted norms um, but it's actually quite specific and 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 it's well i don't know if specific is the word it's sort of something that we see around us all the time so the actual definition i'm just going to very quickly read the beginning this is from i think webster um, to join in in a secret agreement to do an unlawful or wrongful act or an act which becomes unlawful as a result of the secret agreement So that's the definition of a conspiracy and a theory is a conspiracy which has yet to be, say, proven or as in the case of uh, the theory of evolution, we might think of theories as being something that are clearly uh, what we can see from the situation even though we don't actually call them facts because it's a theory, it's a, uh, a, a thought that's presented. And so, when I use the word conspiracy theory, that's all I'm talking about. I'm talking about secret agreements that are made away from the public that are uh, wrong and harmful. Now, if we think about history, nearly all uh, wrong and uh, unlawful acts were done in secret because they were wrong and unlawful, and if people found out, they would probably object. So. By definition, nearly all uh, joint collaborative efforts for unlawful activity will be conspiracies, Fact. That's just, that's just language. So when people talk about conspiracy theories and do believe conspiracy theories and what, it, it tends to delegitimize it by making it sound as if it's just a theory or a crackpot theory. But in actual fact, uh, we are very much unaware Of the many many conspiracies that have been uncovered that are no longer theories but actual uh, proven uh, facts of history that uh, have been uncovered I mean obviously in the last decade or two I think we've seen more public uh, uncoverings but throughout history there have been whistleblowers and the term literally means someone inside an organization which is in secret doing this unlawful activity and feeling morally obligated to, usually at their own risk, uh, um, reveal this information to the public. And I mean, just I think such a beacon of this kind of activity lately is uh, Edward Snowden, who recently had a very interesting interview with Vice, if I'm not mistaken, about the COVID lockdown 19s. Uh, If anyone in chat could find the YouTube link, very interesting, very important, I think, discussion because he is a very, very... Rational, uh, thoughtful, as in thinks-a-lot, human being. Uh, Edward Snowden, and he uncovered a huge conspiracy by, at the very least, uh, the NSA, a secret government uh, organization which was acting against the law, Um, and he revealed it at at great risk. And obviously, I think most of us know the story. If you haven't, please look him up. Either of the films, 4chan or... Not 4... Citizen 4 or... Edward Snowden, I think Snowden it's called, uh, brilliant films, I think, in my humble opinion. So the term conspiracy theories is any kind of theory that there is a group, not just one, but a group of people who are meeting in secret in order to act in a wrongful way. That's it. So if that's the beginning of it, then how far can this theory actually take us? And uh, I think it's important for me to start with my personal story and when i first started to uh, ca- carefully climb down this rabbit hole uh, it was very unnerving and i should say that as i was discovering these things and studying them it was not a pleasant experience it was a very uh, frightening experience and a very um, depressing experience it made me feel very very hopeless and i think that's in part why i carried on Uh, my intense research trying to uncover as much as I could because I felt that for most of this information I felt I had nothing to do, I had no um, personal, individual way to deal with it or to affect it. If there is a secret government branch that's deciding certain things uh, to harm humanity in some way, what can I possibly do besides possibly talk about it with people? But it did make me feel very, very hopeless and helpless in the beginning. I will say that um, once I've managed to wrap my head around it, and it's a, it's a lot of information from a lot of different branches. Um, in my studies, it ranges from archaeology and all of the subjects of archaeoastronomy and ranging to ancient history, to human evolution, to culture, to religion, spirituality, to occult and esoteric subjects, all of these are kind of intertwined. And it's very hard to grasp the large picture without having uh, all of these different elements in place. And so because of that, it took me a long time to start to see a really uh, more full appreciation of what was going on. However, uh, the optimist that I am, once I'd reached this point where I sort of, managed to see uh, more or less and to understand it's in in its entirety not obviously every detail but to capture the larger picture from let's say 500,000 years ago to today um, that was an understanding that gave me a lot of hope and it was actually from that place and from that understanding that the idea of the eco-village came so in a way this is related still in my mind to what we should be doing and if you learn nothing from anything else that I say the eco-village idea is enough you don't have to buy into any of these theories uh, or alternative histories um, in, in my mind in order to do what's right and to, 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 to fulfill yourself But having said that, for me personally, the eco-village idea and the premise and the the idea of how to, in effect, change the reality that we see rests on all of this uh, information and uh, conspiracy theories and occult and esoteric uh, knowledge. So that was a little bit about my entrance into it and the first conspiracy. Uh, That I came across was probably the most famous. uh, I think at that time was certainly what was coming, and it was um, the nine eleven conspiracy. Uh, For those who don't know, there is a tremendously large and legitimate movement, um, part of which and a very uh, important part in my mind is a group of architects from Denmark. If I'm not mistaken, I think most of them are from Denmark, and some of them from around the world, who put together the studies in the documentary and more or less proved that the uh, the story, the mainstream story of an airplane crashing into a building and leveling it to the ground uh, was uh, physically inaccurate in the sense that according to the laws, the known laws of physics that we, that architects uh, are very much aware of in terms of buildings and buildings collapsing, The story of an airplane or two crashing into a building and leveling it is just uh, impossible. And if you've never heard of these things, it is a very, very uh, interesting and possibly dangerous uh, uh, thread to pull. I would recommend to those who have never researched or have never seen it to look for, I can't remember the exact name, it's Architects. If you research 9-11 Architects, you're bound to find it, it's on YouTube. And it's all licensed, uh, you know, scientific uh, people from the uh, mainstream academia community. It's not, you know, (laughs) conspiracy theorists like myself who might be less of an impressive, uh, let's say, resume to back up their facts. Oh, thank you, patient zero. Yeah, so there's a link in the chat for those who want. AE911truth.org. Is that the documentary? There's a lot of websites. Anyway, look into it in your own time. I'm not here to talk about that. Um, but that was where I started, and for me, the understanding as I delved deeper and deeper into the research of how you can prove and see beyond a shadow of a doubt that this the uh, the story that was being told was not the story, and the people who were telling it were um, being uh, were aware very much that they were covering up for something else and that this conspiracy uh, runs very, very deep throughout the institution and the whole uh, system and the infrastructure. And so it was, as I said, rather a, a difficult uh, discovery for me because it was, um, it was very frightening. And uh, for those who don't know, this is something that I talk about a lot. I have to say that when it comes to social uh, experiments and, and I think like understandings, Um, I do use the example of Nazis far too often. Um, Probably because of my upbringing, I was brought up on the Second World War and specifically the uh, Holocaust uh, tales from a very young age. It's something that's very, very, very present in the uh, Israeli society. In fact, there was the Holocaust um, Remembrance Day. This week, I can't remember exactly what day, but uh, I have to. You'll have to excuse me if you feel that it's a little bit uh, <laughs> radical, but I do think that it is one of the best examples in history that we can see of a democratic Western country uh, careening towards uh, a fascist dictatorship with with massive uh, support, and this is exactly what I'm afraid of because I live in a Western society and I think most of my listeners uh, are from Western societies, this is, this is the kind of transformation that we should be aware of. And so the example that I would like to bring is um, there was a very famous uh, night called Kristallnacht in German, if, uh, pr- excuse my pronunciation, um, Glass Night and it was the night that the uh, German nationalists went out and uh, destroyed and burned uh, the Jewish houses, uh, um, places of work, uh, all of the uh, Jewish-owned shops and stores. In one fell swoop, in one night, this was uh, decreed by by Hitler, before he was uh, actually in power, I think, or fully in power, I'm not sure, but uh, very early on, one of the first acts of sort of collective aggression against. And it was done In retaliation to the uh, Reichstag uh, being burnt down and the Reichstag was an important government building and obviously uh, it was portrayed that the Jews had burnt down the Reichstag in, in, in an attempt I think against Germany in general and that's what instigated this and it turned out years later obviously that there was a conspiracy and the conspiracy was that the Nazi government uh, it's okay to talk about the Nazis being conspirators because they were evil, but the German the Nazi uh, government had um, decided to burn down the building, the Reichstag, uh, themselves, in order to incite this hatred and etc. etc. Um, now this is a very unfortunately a very common strategy. Um, it, if you really look at it, what it means is that you are sacrificing something in order to gain something else now obviously when that sacrifice is done openly it's very different when it's done secretly and overtly to uh, sorry covertly but to to influence the things that people think the beliefs of people uh, then it's much more sinister obviously so uh, in my mind and the way that i see it the 9 11 uh, incident was there in order to instigate what followed and looking back nearly 20 years i think next year is uh yeah 20 years um we can clearly see whether it was organized whether it was orchestrated or not that sole act of terror which is completely unparalleled since which we've never seen anything like it you know uh, spiraled into our reality, a complete change in both the actual democratic laws and the state of uh, the government and the power that the government had. This is all the surveillance and all of these different plans basically uh, kept referring back to this uh, incident in order to legitimize it. And worldwide, a state of fear of terror and fighting a conceptual war, no longer fighting an enemy, but fighting an idea. and this, when, when I saw in this light um, that the 9 11 attacks, which killed so many people, were instigated not even as an act of terror, but as an act to propel people towards a certain mind state, um, that was when, that was something that really frightened me. And it was at that moment that I said, okay, I, I, I need to see who. Did this? Who these people are? What their objectives were or are? And really try and understand uh, what's going on. So that was my start into this whole world of conspiracies. And from there, I mean, I moved forward into the monetary system and the World Bank and the IMF and the Federal Reserve. And I mean, there's a lot of very, very, uh, shall we say, uh, shady institutions which, if, any, if ever you would suspect an organization to conduct uh, illegal, immoral, secret uh, uh, meetings uh, and to conspire against citizens, um, it's very clear to see that those are going to be the main suspects. So... Okay, before I continue much further, I just want to go through chat very quickly because I see that there's a lot going on and I'd like to be part of the discussion as well. Now, yes, the building number seven, which, yeah, it's it's such a crazy, I mean, honestly, as someone who's been following these things a long time, uh, seeing, I think that the 911 was a very, very big mistake. I think that a lot of people who were on the fence or sort of not really aware before, that really pushed them to think that we should be questioning a lot more than we are and not just accepting mainstream media and of course COVID is I think another example of that being pushed forward even more. Um, Okay so in in everything that you're talking about the uh, 9-11 who did it how etc I'm not going to get into any of that yet because um, it's actually a subject that I don't want to start from and for me and I think A lot of people that I meet who are interested in these things, and have got interested in it uh, over the past few years, are very much focused on modern day era, conspiracies ranging about 100 years ago, um, usually around 50 years ago, and no more than that. Um, And so I think now it would be a good time for me to present a few of the people whom I sort of uh, read and uh, were a big influence on my studying uh, in this subject. And the key thing is that all of these researchers talk about history. Uh, I'm not sure what we refer to as ancient history, but um, the earliest that uh, some of these stories go back, in terms of the importance of what happened, is around uh, 500,000 years. So half a million years ago. um, And we're going to get into that very soon, I hope. But... In order to talk about these things I'd like to mention a few names and if you've never heard of these, well I'm gonna assume <laughs> that none of you have ever heard of them but if you'd like to research this a bit more if you'd like to see a bit more information there are many many people out there but these are the ones who influenced me uh, the most and so the first and foremost uh, in my history was a man called uh, Zachariah Sitchin now Sitchin was a very very interesting character. He was uh, a, pro- a professor, or a doctor, I think he actually had a PhD in uh, quite a few subjects. Um, he studied archaeology and languages and he was a very big part in the uh, translation of a lot of the ancient languages, uh, Sumerian and cuneiform, and uh, Babylonian, ancient Hebrew, Aramaic—all uh, these different languages—and translating the works to uh, Hebrew, uh, sorry, to English <laughs> from ancient Hebrew. Um, he was actually Israeli. Uh, he was brought up in the U.S. I can't remember his exact life story, but he moved around a lot. And he started—he actually studied uh, in a regular school in Israel—and he studied the Bible. And that was the, the starting point for him. And for me personally, when I had read uh, his, your, his, his whole, the few books that he'd written about the subject, it was a very personal connection because he, I felt he came from the same place I did. He was studying the Orthodox Jewish texts from a very, very young age. And he was pointing out all of these things that were very, very curious. Now as someone who was raised in orthodox judaism whenever you come across something that sounds uh, even you know confusing um, the answer can always come from i think what we we term sort of a subtle underlying uh interpretation of the text meaning it's not the straight text as it's read but it's some kind of interpretation that one of these scholars has given and as as Drawing up in this system, that's a very, very common thing. You hear it all the time. There's always these two different ways of reading the text. One is the, you know, on the surface, um, what's actually written, and the other is the underlying interpretation. And so Sitchin uh, approached the text in the Bible from a purely um, written perspective, meaning no interpretation, no attempt to, you know, see different meanings that could be underlying, etc., but actually take the plain text as is and study that as is. And he came across some very, very interesting facts. Um, I won't go into all of his study because his books, although really fascinating, are written as scientific text, uh, academic text studies. And so it's just um, fact after fact after fact. And it's not a very easy read. Um, I, I enjoyed it. And I think it is telling a story, but as he goes through the story, he is giving a lot of scientific verification for the things he said, which is obviously understandable, given the theory that he's proposing, but still, it might be a, a bit of a, a dense read. Um, and so, I just want to give one small example, which is the, the name of God in the Jewish text. So, in the Bible, when I'm talking about the Bible, I'm sorry, I should specify, I'm talking about the Old Testament, and the reason Sitchin... Um, started doing all of this or one of the reasons that he could was that he was a a native Hebrew speaker and he uh, spoke not only Hebrew, but he learned also the ancient languages the Hebrew came from and a lot of his texts, a lot of what he studies, surprise, surprise, is about the translations and the origin of words, tracing them through different ancient languages and and seeing uh, the meaning of the words that way. So, for me, obviously, that was another reason that I felt very much connected to him. And so, one of the best examples is the name of God in the Jewish uh, religion. And God in the Jewish religion has many, many names. It said, I think, 72 um, as a you know definite answer. But one of the names that he's given, or he, she, it, is uh, gods with a plural S. And in Hebrew, it's quite... Uh, unmistaken because it's uh, the the ending in Hebrew is two letters, yud and men together, it makes a sound im. And so El would be the uh, God, Eloha is another name for God. And then Elohim is the plural of Eloha, of one God. And so the name of the monotheistic singular God uh, in the Jewish faith is a multiple of gods. And you might say, well, there's a lot of interpretations for that. But the sentences in the beginning of the Bible actually use the verbs in the plural uh, sense. In Hebrew, you conjugate a verb to be plural or singular. And so you can clearly see that the verb is continuing this plural uh, language. And so that's something that was very, it was instrumental in my understanding and my development because... I had been reading these texts from a very very young age, or I should be, saying, I should say, I was read these texts um, and then went on to read and then studied and then passed tests and has have been living these texts. I can, you know, obviously I'm not memorized the whole thing, but I have memorized quite a lot, and over the years I have never thought about it being plural. Never. And I must have read it. I mean, I don't know. But it's because of that. From a very young age, I was reading it. It became normal. People told me this is what it means. And I never questioned it. I never went back and was never able to read it with fresh eyes until this man who, uh, whatever, was, was a rather <laughs> random person for me to come across, was writing in this book saying, you know, have you ever noticed or why is it that the God is actually called God's, and not the God, as he is referred to in every other place from then on. So, the only uh, place where he's mentioned with the verbs as plural is in Genesis. So, it's it's very, very curious. I won't go into it right now as to what it means, why it is, etc., but um, that's just a little bit about uh, who Sitchin was and what his background is. <clears throat> now, Sitchin, when he describes these things, he is talking... Uh, almost exclusively from an archaeological point of view, meaning he went around to these ancient digs and ancient sites and was uncovering artefacts to um, to support his theory, and the literary uh, translations, which is uh, sort of complementary to what he was uh, studying and uncovering. So that's one end of the spectrum, and he's obviously the most... Uh, As academic as you can be talking about these theories, I think. On the other end of that spectrum is someone who is probably the least academic uh, that you could be. And I think it's very important for me to start off this uh, first show really laying my uh, cards face up. Because if these are subjects that don't interest you, if it's something that you feel in any way that it, I don't know, offends you or is just... Uh, not worth your time, then this is the way it's going. So you should uh, know from the start um, what the direction is. I will say that uh, most of my studies I have supported uh, in my mind with evidence and science, but uh, not all. And I certainly believe there is a part of reality that the attempt to prove factually or an attempt to disregard experience that isn't um, would actually be a mistake. So. That's my uh, my theory. So, the second person I'd like to mention is named Drunvalo Melchizedek. Now, uh, Drunvalo Melchizedek is a very interesting character for those who may have heard of him. He's actually a lot more famous than he uh, appears to be because he's not known by his name. But if any of you have heard of spirit science, um, not to discredit spirit science in any way, but I was rather surprised when I... I'd seen most... Okay, so Spirit Science is a YouTube channel where they go through basic spiritual concepts rather uh, in very good, very short videos for sort of basic understandings. A marvelous YouTube channel. Go check it out if you haven't heard of it. If you're interested in it, I I do recommend. But I was a little bit upset when I learned that I think most of his early videos, the first 50 or so, were word-for-word quotes From Drunvalo Melchizedek's book. And, you know, I'm not going to go into any kind of plagiarism or anything like that. uh, He does mention him by name, uh, Drunvalo Melchizedek, a few times. And I I wouldn't say that he's, you know, completely in disregard to it, but I was very much surprised when I saw that he was literally reading out a lot of sentences from the book. I was reading the book and I, I recognized the sentences because they were exact quotes. So, if you've seen spirit science if you know yeah. anything about it if you enjoyed it uh, I would recommend go checking out uh, Dr. Kizadek's book uh, the book that I would recommend and I actually uh, found it online is called uh, the secret to the flower of life right the secret teachings of the flower of life sorry and in that book he covers in it's sort of a two part book it's around 400 pages in total he covers the whole spectrum it's 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 an amazing read now when you say, okay, well, what are his <laughs> credentials, etc., cetera, um, in his terms and the way that he describes it, he has been receiving information through alternative uh, channels uh, for quite some time. He seems to be quite uh, apt at it. And so it's uh, very important for me to be upfront about the fact that uh, if you're unable or unable to uh, accept anything that isn't completely, you know, backed up by science, uh, he might not be the best place for you to start. But for me, well, I should say that for me personally, I was reading his book while I was experiencing a lot of these things. And in fact, um, after I would experience, I would read his book, uh, in his book and read about the thing that I just experienced. So it was a very, very personal experience. experience for me, that was backed up by my reality. So uh, I I had a very powerful connection. It's very well written. I think it's very interesting and important information. And he doesn't talk as much about the archaeology and the language, although obviously he does a bit, but he talks a lot about uh, sacred geometry and the the ideas and the concepts of sacred geometry have been used in humanity, I would say far more in history than we see it in uh, present day around us. So he talks a lot about um, the spiritual side of things. And although he speaks as well about an, a history of humanity, um, it's an alternative history to Drumeval melchizedek which those two stories seem to be telling very different uh, narratives and that was rather confusing for me a to understand to put it together Um, and i think it's it's very uh, interesting that the next person i'd like to present the researcher that i like was actually he was named uh, gerald clark and he is the person who helped me to uh, knit these two theories together and to see uh, the dual-sided narrative that seems to be very disconnected and yet if you can see the pieces and how they work together they can be completely complementary and uh, in in my mind at least i view these two theories as being uh, equally not only valid but actually occurring at the same time so we'll get into that i think a little bit but all of this is going to be a bit further down the road i just want to give a brief overview of the people And if you'd like to check out any of this, then some names uh, for you to look into it. So, Gerald Clark is another very interesting character. He was a fighter pilot. Um, I think he was actually in a... He was a combat pilot, but I think he flew helicopters and he eventually... He was actually a medic, so he flew combat uh, helicopters for the medics. Anyway, he was an electric... He is, I should say, he's still uh, publishing. He's an electrical engineer. And he studied a lot of these things and he, I mean, he studied uh, structural integration or rolfing for those who know and he's a very, very interesting character. He's obviously uh, gone through a lot of different subjects, but he eventually came across this, the monetary system and a lot of the medical system. His son actually has a rather um, rare genetic uh, disorder and I can't actually remember the name, but he, that started him also on this journey. Um, Both of understanding the human body and our brain's uh, electromagnetic frequencies and how our spine and all this fits together both with structural integration but also carrying on to a more spiritual application and understanding of... I mean, a lot of different things. He talks about how posture can affect mood and how the chakra system is actually uh, uh, um, the list of ganglions, of nerves that we have in our body, and really applying a lot of uh, science and modern-day science specifically to a lot of these very ancient, uh, older uh, theories that we have about the universe and about human beings. He obviously talks a lot about uh, uh, sacred geometry as well. And for me, his real, um, real, I think, gift and what I took from him the most was his ability to see and connect uh, these different narratives. For example, one of the very, very important big researches that he did, conducted, was to um, trace the different gods uh, in different cultures throughout history. And so the uh, Sumerian gods to the Babylonian gods to the Egyptian gods, to the Greek gods to the Roman gods, all of these different gods seem to be, or in my mind are, actual uh, the same characters being passed on through cultures uh, changing both in names and language but still maintaining this this identity um, which is a very interesting concept in and of itself and uh, I hope we'll get to that later. It's it's actually I think rather accepted to a certain degree. Um, We see it with the Roman and Greek um, pantheon uh, most easily but uh, that's because most people don't know about the Sumerian pantheon. So I'm hoping that we'll be talking about these things uh, later on in future episodes. But that's a little bit of an overview of who Joel Clark is. Again, if you want to check him out, he has a YouTube channel. Uh, his books were also quite important in my uh, in my development as well. And so the final character in my uh, four piece puzzle. Um, oh, you know what? Before I get into that, let me just check chat very quickly. Oh, wow. Is this the uh, gods? Oh, I can't see in my uh, chat. Um, Rondon, I think, has just opened, uh, has uploaded a picture. Yeah, yes. So let me see. First Hermes, Stella theology, Yahwehism, Enoch, Noah. Well done. So this is a list of the religions and the... But it's not deities, I think. This is... Yeah, the religions and the uh, uh, what is the term? Sorry, sort of this the scholars or the important uh, people. Wow, very, thanks for that, uh, Rondon, for sharing that. So that'll be in chat um, for those of you who are seeing. Yes, yeah. I guess. <laughs> then I had to open it. Ah, um, oh, hang on, let me just go. Ah, yeah. So that's the attachment. So uh, this is this is um, this is very interesting in seeing the different relation um, religions and the different connection, but. This is a very, very comprehensive list and it goes through the different continents as well. With a lot of these deities um, from the Sumerian pantheon, they seem to be geographically a lot closer and uh, I think there is a reason for that. And Basically, I mean, it's a rather specific tale which involves, let's say, um, the Europe of today, which can be traced back to these, you know, cultures that are around the Fertile Crescent and the Mediterranean. Um, a little bit, for, for those who don't know, that's the, uh, even according to the mainstream academia, that's the, you know, the cradle of our civilization, and obviously that's a very uh, European uh Perception of it because it it makes a lot of sense. It's in the center of the world map. So, how couldn't it be? But definitely there is a narrative that I followed through which is speaking of a specific group of deities to that area. However, as is uh, the case in many things, there is the Asian counterpart, the South American counterpart, the uh, Indo-Valley counterpart, etc. So, there are these different groups and we'll, we'll talk about some of them. I personally have focused much more on as I was saying, the sort of uh, Sumer until today uh, centre, because that was, I think, just was what was more available. I would very much like to study more about Indian and Chinese uh, mysticism. Um, unfortunately, the language is more of a barrier than most of these writings that are in English when it comes to European. So that's the reason, and I apologize for my uh, lack of... In anything else. Um, oh my gosh. that has been going up so quickly. Uh, I'm going to try and catch up with that as we go. But I'm just going to carry on. Because I can see it's already quarter two. I can't believe it. We're, we're halfway through. Okay. So this first episode is going to be a little bit about what's coming. I was hoping to get to human evolution. Uh, ancient civilizations. But we'll save that for next week I think. So the final. Uh, per- so let, me just, uh, let me just carry on with this. Um, ah yeah. The evolution of religion. Yeah. 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 Wonderful. So, the final person whom I'd like to talk about is actually very, very special and of the four, um, he is the only one I have actually made contact with and his name is Michael Tellinger. I'd be interested to know how many people have heard of him. He's sort of, I think, semi-famous, it depends, but uh, I've actually mentioned Michael Tellinger before um, on the episode about money. And the reason being he is, I think, one of the really leading activists against the current financial system, or at least he was. He's slightly declined in both activity and uh, how fitting in funds, but that's really because he has put his life and soul and everything he has into this uh, into this fight. So his story is a rather interesting one as well, as so many of the... Uh, <laughs> recognized conspiracy theorists, he actually started his life as an investigative journalist and that led him down this sort of, eventually, uh, he's, he's South African, I should mention, he is white and from South Africa, and he discovered the banking system, uh, banksters as he likes to call them, and he decided, um, I think this was in 2011, 2010. I might be wrong, but around quite a long time ago, he uh, yes, he is the gold guy, Marcos. Well done. Um, he decided to sue the banking system in South Africa uh, upon discovering both the corruption of the government and all of that's going on. Now, I just want to say that in my mind, I was so surprised when I heard that because that's a little bit like discovering the casino cheats and then trying to beat them at their own game. If you're trying to sue a government through that government's legal system. Um, especially if you're investigating corruption, it just sounds like a little bit of a, I don't know, uh, interesting idea. But that's my personal opinion. He went for it, and he really, uh, you know, went through quite a few court cases trying to pick it up. Obviously, in the end, it was thrown out of court. Um, and that started him on this journey of realizing a the system is corrupt b, it cannot be just simply changed from the inside these laws were meant to protect the people and instead uh, they're being used to oppress them and he uh, went on this whole journey of uncovering and part of his studying was uh, a lot of um, studying and researching the archaeological sites in South Africa and He went on a long process. He's actually doing tours in South Africa of ancient uh, sites right now. Um, He's written a lot about it. He's found some very interesting things. And he deals a lot with ancient civilizations and ancient technologies that were being used. Um, For example, one of the very interesting theories is there there are gold mines in South Africa dating back... uh, let me think. Actually, dating back a million years ago, um, a million years ago and two million years ago, and there's really no explanation besides the technologies that we didn't have. There was no smelting of uh, gold or metals until much, much later, according to most of our scientific theories. And so, if you're interested, it's uh, it's 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 quite weird, but it's also rather specific. You have to understand about mining and, you know, radiation and the different ways of dating um, scientifically. But uh, it is actually accepted that these mines exist and that they date back to very, very uh, long ago. Um, <laughs> well done, Rondon. Yes, we're going to get into all of that. But uh, Michael Tellinger is, I think, one of the more unique people because, um, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say as myself since he actually did it before, um, he went on after doing all of these things and researching and trying to get the words out he actually started well the first thing was that he started a political party in that was running in the south african government called the ubuntu party i've mentioned uh, ubuntu in that episode uh, in that episode and that's the term that he uses to describe all of this new way of life it's the name of his uh book uh, ubuntu contributionism and he was running. I think I think it was like two terms that he was trying to run. So it was eight. Uh, I don't know, four years, and then like the fifth year he was running again. Um, I think they went twice. They didn't get many votes uh, at all, and they poured a lot of money into it. And obviously they have no funding, so it was, you know, it was. Uh, there's a lot of these stories where you see people who are really good and trying to do good, uh, just not get anywhere when they try and do uh, work with the system it's very sad and I've seen it happen too often but that was what um, really took a big toll off of him uh, out of him and he uh, changed his activities and he had to downscale and downsize a lot of the things that he was doing but following that came a very interesting idea which actually predates the eco village and I think obviously it's not the first time that someone conceived of this but the idea was called one small town and so instead of trying to form a government um, in South Africa or anywhere else he decided to propose this plan for any mayor of a small town up to a thousand residents and this was an economic plan and a city planning uh, strategy to make the town Uh, Self-sustainable and so the town would create its own power would grow its own food collect its own water Um, The people would be required to work uh, three hours a week Um, This whole plan is is detailed if uh, anyone is interested in reading it because it's it's interesting I can't say I agree with everything he proposes, but it's definitely a very interesting idea and it did uh, I have to say that it did start me on my way and lend a lot of what I eventually came up with when we were thinking about the the eco-village and so it's still still, uh, in action today and in fact if I'm not mistaken um, if I'm not mistaken today he is running the one small town program uh, in a few places I'm not sure where exactly today I think there's a one place in Canada anyway if you're interested You can research it, you can check it out, but I'm not entirely sure right now. Um, But that's where he is today, basically. So, he's a very interesting person. He has, again, this very wide variety of going through a lot of archaeology, a lot of ancient technology, uh, reading, obviously, the ancient texts, but also very much ingrained or or trying to understand and work with the current system, the monetary system, the political system, and he's been through a lot of evolutions, as I've mentioned quite a few, um, in his path and in his attempt to sort of, well, basically deal with the situation, offer something a little bit better. Um, Okay, so... That's about the full research. I think we've got 10 minutes left. So I think we're going to stop because the next part is actually a a big part. So let me just tell you a little bit, uh, if uh, if you want to know, about what will be in the next episode. Um, Let me me know in the chat what you guys uh, think about these subjects. If you've heard about them, if they're interesting, Uh, I'd like to know. A little bit about the people in chat, uh, sort of where you are in this whole thing, because it's a lot, uh, a lot to get through. Oh, thanks for coming, photon um And let me just check. Oh, okay. I see chat wasn't anything too important that I missed. <laughs> okay. So next week I will be starting uh, the story, and as far as I'm concerned it's very, very important to look back and to go, well, as far back as necessary in order to start grasping this real path that we as humans have been uh, walking down for quite some time. And so I would like to start with the theory of evolution, of all things, and talk a little bit about, um, I would say that I, I obviously... Uh, believe agree with the theory of evolution. I think that it's exists. It's it's quite easy to see that The universe works in this progressive uh, You know chronological incremental um, You know development whether it's things that are growing or uh, Advancing processing etc. So it makes a lot of sense to see that that is the same throughout the universe but however um I think there is more that can be said than just this uh, main narrative that we had. And so I want to talk a little bit about that and about the first humans and what was actually going on uh, from the beginning. And that will lead us up nicely into uh, ancient civilizations. And so um, I will just say, excuse me, that when it comes to ancient civilizations, there was a lot... In my mind going on um, antediluvian before the great flood uh, for those who don't know or, or in any way there was a big flood at the end of the last Ice Age around 10-12,000 years ago and it wiped out most of the face of the planet and uh, Sumer was the first civilization to rise after um, that flood now that, as far as I'm concerned, that was all uh, scientifically accepted theory today. But the question is, what was around here before that flood? And when we look at the Sumerian texts, we see them talking a lot about the cultures that led up to and those that actually uh, instigated um, the Sumerian culture. And so, I, as far as I'm concerned, going back uh, six to eight thousand years to uh, sorry, 6,000 years ago to the Sumerian uh, culture and that beginning is far enough in my mind to sort of grasp what's going on. But it is important to say that long before the Sumerian culture was around, there were other civilizations that they speak of and these civilizations seem to be also uh, precursors to what came afterwards and an important part in this plot. So, I would say that I'm going to be focusing a lot on the Sumerian culture. Um, they are the ones who are our sort of gateway to the anti world, uh, to the world before the flood. But at the same time, it's important for us to recognize that there were these cultures that came before and the importance of how that changes our narrative. So, the two cultures that are sort of sister cultures in that regard are Sumer and uh, Egypt as being um, very distinct cultures and affecting their surrounding nations, uh, very much so and indeed uh, affecting a lot of history. So, I will see... To be honest, I thought I'd get through a lot more this week, so I'll have to see how it goes next week, if we'll have time for more. Um, Yeah, if you want, if any of you are on Hive or anywhere in the chat, if you've got any subjects that you have heard about or that you'd like me to talk about please feel free because I'm there's a lot of information there's a lot to be uh, to go over Um, and as far as I'm concerned I'm trying to construct a narrative that sort of will be explaining it chronologically as things develop but at the same time there are lots and lots of different branches and as you may have noticed I sometimes tend to wander off I, I do enjoy it I think it's Good to see a a very lateral and interconnected view as well, and so if you guys can point me in any direction, then uh, that would be great. Um, Okay, great. So I can see the people in chat are rather uh, aware of the things I'm talking about. I have to say I was uh, expecting to a certain degree, and I'm (laughs) a little more apprehensive of my offline listeners who I think uh, may be a little new, a little more new. To these uh, subjects, but it's always wonderful to have my uh, listeners um, to feel that we're on the same wavelength. So thank you very much for your support and for your continued support, even through this uh, change in format. It's it's very much appreciated. Our um, ah, revised sociology. Thank you so much for joining. Sorry, uh, all the people in chat: Crimson Clad and Steam, Patient Zero, Lax Rondon. Uh, I can I can never forget. How do you pronounce your name? I'm sorry, I always forget. Um, but thank you all for joining me. I was a little bit on edge in the beginning because I was uh, my com- I restarted my computer um, when I shouldn't have and I literally was streaming, I think, 10 seconds before I was live. Something like that. So relative to that, I'm, I'm pleased, but it means that I was a little bit uh, <laughs> not quite with it in the beginning. Um, let's see in the chat what else have we got here. This, uh, sorry just one moment, sorry I still have a little bit of a, talking for an hour straight it's a bit hard on your throat, Uh, creationism and evolution theory don't have to be mutually exclusive, well done, yes absolutely and uh, yeah we'll, (laughs) we'll get into more of that, creationism is also one of those trigger words because I've seen a lot of creationists who are very unscientific in their approach. Um, And that can give a bad name, just like I've met a lot of uh, conspiracy theorists who uh, don't approach the subject with the same scientific vigor uh, that I personally would like to see. Um, Okay, so if a data got it like a thousand years, an Earth was created in seven days, that's about 7,000 years of creation, would, would look a lot like evolution, absolutely. Um, oh, okay, we're, okay, but we're not going to get into the discussion of the evolution of material because I'm going to be focusing entirely on the evolution of human beings. Um, whether the theory of the evolution, the dinosaurs or anything else in my mind is less important as is um, the fact that humanity seems to so clearly stand out and be very, very different Uh, from everything else okay so that will be it from me thank you ever so much for listening Um, I hope you join next week for our continued uh, discussion and uh, hope you have a good week going enjoy